Hey, hey, Prime members, talking to you. You can listen to CBS Mornings on the go ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person. And I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like. All at the same time. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, the zen seeker, the artist, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. A gifting moment is always around the corner. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Gift easy with Gift Mode on Etsy. I'm Lilia Luciano, a CBS News correspondent. And this is the CBS Mornings Podcast. Dan Harris was an ABC News correspondent and an anchor for 21 years. He recently stepped away from his career as a journalist to focus full-time on his meditation and mindfulness company, 10% Happier. 10% Happier was born out of a panic attack Dan had on air back in June 2004. He's gone on to write a best-selling book, host a podcast, and provide tips through an app and a newsletter. Fun fact, his book, 10% Happier, got me to start meditating about seven years ago, and I have never stopped. Dan joined my colleague Jamie Yukas recently to share his journey to mindfulness and how we can all become 10% happier. Here's their conversation. Dan, can you take me back to June 7th, 2004 and what happened? Yeah, uh, short version. I freaked out on national television. Um, (laughs) Slightly longer version as I was... That we used to have a role on morning shows uh, that we don't really have anymore on any of the morning network morning shows. But the role was called newsreader. Uh, and that was the person who would come on at the top of each hour and read a few headlines off of the teleprompter. And um, I was filling in for the person who had that job full time back in 2004. Her name is Robin Roberts. Uh, She's now the main host of the show, but she was off that morning doing something else and I was filling in for her and I've done it many, many times before. So I I didn't have any reason to be nervous. Um, But a few seconds into my shtick, my heart started racing. My palms got sweaty. My mouth dried up. My lungs seized up. I couldn't breathe or talk, which is problematic if you're anchoring the news. And um, I had to kind of squeak out a back to you to my to the main hosts of the show, Diane Sawyer and Charlie Gibson. Yeah, it sucked. Yeah, and it's a terrible feeling. I've had a panic attack and it's not, it, you feel helpless um, and you don't know what's happening. Do you know what triggered yours specifically? Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> after I had a panic attack, I went to uh, a shrink. My mom at that time was a doctor, quite prominent physician, um, and she was watching the show and called me backstage and said, you just had a panic attack. I knew I had, I had had a panic attack, although I lied to everybody around me and said that, uh, I don't know what happened and blah, blah, blah. I kind of bluffed my way through it, but I was not going to lie to my mom. And she said, you know, so we, we need to get you to see a, a shrink. Cause this is an issue because panic disorder can kind of just spiral. Right. Um, 
So I went to go see this expert in panic. Uh, and he asked me a bunch of questions to try to figure out what was going on. And one of the questions he asked was, do you do drugs? And I kind of sheepishly said, yeah, I do. Um, backstory there is that I had spent a lot of time in war zones after 9-11 as an ambitious young reporter and uh, had gotten depressed at one point and very unwisely self-medicated with recreational drugs, including cocaine. Um, I was not doing it that often, and I definitely was not doing it when I was on the air. So it wasn't like I was high on the air, but the doctor explained that it was enough to change my brain chemistry and make it more likely for me to freak out. And mm. so there's your answer. Well, do you find that there are a lot of people in this business, the news business, like you just said, who are self-medicating and don't know how to seek help? Is that part of what motivated you to be so open about talking about your story? I definitely think it's the case that there's a lot of undiagnosed um, mental health issues among reporters. I don't have any data to back that up. This is my qualitative assessment, not any sort of quantitative uh, analysis that I've done. But it just seems, based on anecdotal evidence, to be quite common for journalists to go into very stressful situations and not necessarily uh, do a lot of the you know, mental health uh, self-care that that could you know treat that um i you know I, I decided to be open about my own struggles not necessarily because i wanted to um you know help my fellow journalists although that that's been a nice byproduct but mostly because i wanted to help everybody because ultimately what i found after having made a fool out of myself uh was meditation which you know, when I first got interested in it, was was not very well subscribed and had a pretty big PR problem. And what I started to see quite quickly is that there is actually a lot of scientific evidence that suggests that meditation is very, very helpful. We could talk about that if you want, but um, I really wanted to make meditation attractive to people who might otherwise be skeptical. And I thought one way to get people's attention was would be to to really give people a front row seat uh, at you know all of the at the sort of machinations and machinery of my own mind, and that's incredibly embarrassing to do. But I I do think it's a really useful way to help people understand how meditation can help in a mind that's skeptical and ambitious um, and prone to anxiety and depression. All of which, you know, all of that all of the attributes I just listed are quite common. And so that was my real goal for opening up. Well, that's, I, I do want to ask you a little bit about that. Did you immediately turn to meditation? No. Um, it wasn't presented to me as an option um, in the immediate aftermath of my uh, panic attack. I did start seeing the aforementioned psychiatrist once or twice a week for many, many years. Um, and in the, in the, in that period of time, about the three, four, five years after I had the panic attack, something separate or seemingly separate happened, which is that I was covering faith and spirituality for ABC News. My mentor at the time was a guy named Peter Jennings, who had assigned me to cover this beat that I did not want to cover um, because I was uh, you know, raised in the People's Republic of Massachusetts. I sometimes joke that I, I had a bar mitzvah, but only for the money. So I was not really spiritually inclined. I was a pretty dedicated, you know, agnostic or maybe even atheist. But um, 
Peter didn't care and told me to do it anyway. And it turned out to be really great for me. And uh, in the course of covering faith and spirituality and, and um, really opening my mind a little bit about the value of having a worldview that transcends your own narrow interests. In the course of that, I started to bump up against uh, some interesting aspects of the self-help world. A lot of the self-help world is not very interesting and I think pretty damaging, but I did, I did read this book by this guy, Eckhart Tolle, who is a best-selling, mega best-selling self-help guru. And a lot of what he writes is, is not really comprehensible to me, but he did in this book that I read, he, he, he spoke in really compelling terms about uh, what he calls the ego, which he doesn't, you know, I think in common parlance, we talk about the ego as like thinking we're great. He just right. means the voice in your head that chases you out of bed in the morning and is yammering at you all day long and has you constantly wanting stuff and not wanting stuff and judging people and judging yourself and comparing yourself to other people. And here's one of the biggies, you know, thinking about the past and thinking about the future to the detriment of whatever's happening right now. And uh, I read that and I thought, well, that's just intuitively true. And I'd never heard anybody describe this inner conversation that we're all having all the time and which if we broadcast aloud, we would be locked up. But I had never actually heard anybody describe it so well. Um, and I realized that that description of the human condition answered the question of, you know, why did I have a panic attack? Because I went off to war zones without thinking about the consequences, came home, was insufficiently self-aware to know that I was depressed and then blindly self-medicated. I was just being yanked around by my ego or the voice in my head. And while Eckhart Tolle is ultimately for me a little bit frustrating in that I didn't, I, I don't think he has much actionable advice. It was through reading him that I then stumbled upon meditation, which at that time, again, really, this was would have been 2008, 2009, this is the first time in my life I've ever been ahead of a trend uh, because generally I'm, I'm behind all the trends, but I got lucky and I, and I, 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 I realized this is a great story and there wasn't a lot of press being given to the fact that there was all this science that showed that meditation could do these terrific things to your brain and to your psychology. And um, so I started doing it and, and then I started thinking, oh, well, maybe I should write a book. Yeah. Always the journalist. You found the story uh, in helping yourself to then help others. How did you decide to launch 10% Happier? So in this period of time without I'm describing, you know, 2008, 2009, I finally kind of got over myself and started meditating, even though, um, you know, I, I harbored many of the negative stereotypes that many people harbor about meditation or at least used to before it got reasonably cool. Um, and I thought it was for, you know, people who live in a yurt and are really into aromatherapy and, you know, John Tesh music and whatever. But that the science, you know, I'm, my parents are both scientists. My wife is a scientist. I'm not good at math. So like you, I went into television, but I respect science and I was compelled by the science. And I was really just always looking for ways to be less miserable. You know, we work in a very stressful field. And even though I wasn't self-medicating anymore, you know, the stress of, of the job was sometimes making me unpleasant to myself and other people. And so I was intrigued by the notion of, you know, not being so owned by the malignant puppeteer of my ego. And um, so I started doing about five minutes a day and reading a lot of books. And I saw 
one that the the meditation was helpful for me and we could talk about how how it can be helpful and then the other thing i saw was that a lot of the books i was reading were you know helpful but pretty annoying and i i don't know if i would have ever recommended any of them to my more skeptical friends and that was when i had the idea of like oh maybe i should write a book uh and use the f word a lot and tell embarrassing stories and and make it you know really try to make this scientifically validated evidence-based practice more accessible to people. And so I wrote a book, I called it 10% Happier, which was kind of like a rough description of the impact it had on me. Um, and then I didn't think the book was gonna do anything. And by the way, neither did my publisher. Um, <laughs> first of all, they tried to bargain me up to 20% happier, um, which I resisted. Uh, and then they, the initial print run for the book was only 15,000. So they, 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 nobody thought this was gonna be successful. Definitely, I did not. And then it just came out at the right time. Meditation was, this was 2014. So meditation was starting to like get some hype and, um, you know, I was I was employed by a major media organization that really threw its heft behind the book. And so it, it became pretty successful and which was awesome. And then I you know started a podcast uh, also called 10 Percent Happier. And then I also started to uh, raise some venture capital money and started a meditation app also called 10 Percent Happier. And so now it's kind of swallowed my life. And I recently you know quit being a journalist and this is all I do. Well, it sounds like you wanted to take the self-help world and make it more relatable. Yeah, uh, make it more relatable and get rid of some of the noxious stuff. You know, I mean, I think they're in the self-help world. There are some unhealthy messages being put out there. Well, I would say number one on the list of um, villains is this idea of the power of positive thinking. The idea that, you know, this was... Per, you know, perpetuated most prominently probably in, in um, a book called The Secret, where, you know, the argument is that you can get anything you want through the power of positive thinking. You know, you can manifest a diamond necklace, you can cure yourself of breast cancer, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there just isn't any evidence for this. I mean, just, you could just do a thought experiment. Like, so uh, I'm living in Haiti, which has in, under, you know, undergone political tumult, poverty, uh, colonialism, uh, earthquakes. Uh, so if I've been born into Haiti, does that mean I was thinking negatively in utero? Of course <laughs> not. This is just ridiculous. And I think it's a, it's a very damaging thing to put out into the universe because you're, you're making people think that the circumstances of their lives are their fault. You know, sometimes that's true, but often there's structural issues that are way out of all of our control that are, that are, the, the 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 real cause of the problems that people are experiencing. So I I want to get rid of that stuff. And ten, the title 10% Happier was in part designed to counter-program against the reckless over-promising that I've, I've seen in the self-help world. And then in, in, in terms of the parts of the self-help world that are really, really helpful, like meditation, for example, um, I'm also interested in, in uh, a kind of meditation that doesn't get a lot of airtime, which is uh, this, uh, I think, uh, can come off as kind of sappy uh, meditation called loving kindness. But again, there's a lot of <laughs> evidence behind. Yeah, we can talk about that. We get, There's a lot of evidence behind these practices that can, I don't know, they can be off-putting to people and, and they can come off as earnest or treacly. And I want to uh, present them in a way that makes them attractive because I ultimately think it's going to make people's lives better and that will make the world better. 
Well, and it seems like we're at a time right now um, where people are really angry. They're really stressed out. Yes. They're really tired. Yes. Um, so now you have a new project coming out after Thanksgiving, and it seems like the timing of it is, again, lining up really well. We uh, at 10% Happier are constantly doing these free public meditation challenges where we pick an issue uh, that is very common for people. And we try to create uh, a limited time uh, scoped uh, challenge, you know, a seven days, 10 days, 20 days. Um, and so we've done anxiety in the past. And again, these are free. And every day you, if you, you just download our app and every day you get served up a little video of me uh, interviewing somebody about the issue. Uh, and then it rolls directly into a short guided meditation that kind of pounds the wisdom into your neurons and hopefully helps you boot up a meditation practice. So we are going to be launching uh, a, a meditation challenge that we're calling the anti-diet challenge, which, um, it, you know, especially around the holidays, a lot of us can get very obsessive around food and our body image and uh, diets, the data show, do not work. And instead, what we need to have is a healthier relationship to food. And uh, there is a there is a way to do that, uh, combining uh, a methodology known as intuitive eating with meditation. And so we're going to be teaching that uh, around the new year. We're also going to do another big challenge uh, to help people sort of get unstuck uh, from lots of the ruts in which we can find ourselves. So we're constantly coming up with ways to help people boot up meditation practice and then apply it to whatever issues they're having in their lives. It's really the way you connect all these things is really fascinating to me because I think so many people just mindlessly go through. And like I said, I think we're in this place right now you know, I have to travel a lot in this job, as you know, and it's, people are so angry. They're just very stressed out and really upset. And um, do you feel like we're having a mental health crisis in this country? Yes, we were in a mental health crisis by pretty much any measure pre-pandemic, you know, very high levels of anxiety, depression, suicide, loneliness, addiction. Um, but that has just gotten worse in the pandemic. Um and it's a it's a huge issue. And this is, you know, a lot of what drives me and my team and, and what everything we do uh, from the podcast to the app to the books that I write. Um, one thing I'll point out in particular, that I think the the pandemic threw into stark relief and I think could be a, a very useful thing for all of us to think about is we just ran a global, unplanned, unregulated experiment <laughs> in what happens when you deny people social interaction. Mm. And that's, that's what happened in the pandemic. Um, and it's still happening to varying degrees around the world. What this shows is that we are a social species. Um, we evolved for cooperation and kindness and compassion and togetherness, right? This can sound a little touchy-feely, so forgive me, but it's based in science. We did not take over the planet as the apex predator, which we, we have taken over as the apex predator for many millennia now. We didn't get to this point because we were the strongest animal. Definitely not. We, we got to this point because we could work together to take down the mastodon or whatever it was. So this kind of social interaction is in our DNA deeply. And when it's when we're denied this, that's why you that's when you'll see things like anxiety, depression, et cetera, et cetera, spike. And the 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 good news here is that you can get quite intentional in uh, ab about 
making sure you have meaningful relationships. And I've seen data to show that um, the average answer when Americans were asked decades ago, how many close friends do you have that you could call an emergency in an emergency? The average answer used to be five. The average answer is now is zero. Wow. Um, and so th this is, I think, in many ways, the the root or one of the roots of our current predicament that the American mythology of rugged individualism, of this sort of atomization, um, isolation, go it alone ethos, uh, aided and abetted by technology, which keeps us in our, you know, keeps us with our noses in our phones and keeps us in our own sort of carefully curated um, uh, uh, info silos and keeps us in this unhealthy state of comparing ourselves to one another. That this all adds up to us not having the social interaction that we need. And you can make this a practice. You can really pay attention to your social calendar and the quality of your relationships. And this will have a massive impact along with the other things we already know that help like meditation and therapy and eating well and getting enough sleep, et cetera, et cetera. But social connection is a thing many of us don't pay attention to and we should. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that's so spot on. I, I want to know, how do you define happiness? You know, there's so much to say about this because it's, it, it's a intriguingly confusing question. Intriguing because <laughs> I think many people have trouble, myself included, defining happiness. And there's a reason for this. Um, the very, you can see our cultural ambivalence about happiness in the very linguistic roots of the word, H-A-P, that's the same root of the word haphazard and hapless. So it, it means luck. Uh, we have this subconscious assumption, many of us, that happiness is something that happens to us. It's dependent on exogenous factors, you know, um, maybe, you know, what's happening for us at work or the quality of our childhood or what's happening in our dating life. All those things are very important. But happiness, and this is what the, the brain science around meditation is showing. When you study the brains of meditators, um, you see that they change in response to the practice. And so that very strongly suggests that happiness is not some unalterable factory setting or, or, or you know, just the result of luck or the stuff that happens to us in our life. But in fact, happiness is a skill that we can take responsibility for through meditation and other modalities. And that's really good news. So in that sense, this atheist slash agnostic is now an evangelist. You know, my, the, the word gospel <laughs> actually translates into good news. So the good news that I am spreading is that, you know, happiness is a skill. The mind is trainable and there are lots of ways to do it. And you don't have to be stuck with um, the things about your life, the things about your own personality that you don't like, that you can work on them. Um, I've asked many, many people, how do you define happiness? And the best answer I've ever gotten, this is going to, I want to warn you in advance, this is going to sound initially unsatisfying, but I think it will become satisfying. Best answer I've ever gotten is I, I, there's a, very close friend of mine, a fantastic psychiatrist and also author by the name of Dr. Mark Epstein. And he's written a whole series of beautiful books about the overlap between psychology, modern psychology and Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And um, he actually has a new book coming out um, in uh, January called The Zen of Therapy, which I've read already and is fantastic. And I once asked Mark, you know, what, how do you define happiness? And he said, it's more of the good and less of the bad. <laughs> 
which, you know, you're laughing because it's like, what does that mean? So actually, I sat with it for a while and I now actually think it really makes sense. So for me, if you, if you think about happiness as like I'm we've already I've already cop to not being good at math. But um, if you think about a graph, you've got one line going horizontally, another line going vertically. So one up one line and one uh, sideways line. If you think of the sideways line, as our psychologists believe, we all have a happiness set point. So good things happen in our lives and you and our happiness level will go above the set point. This, the, the, the higher part of the graph will get higher, but then bad things happen and we'll dive below the set point and uh, we'll be living below our happiness set point. But we tend to revert back to, you know, after all of the tumult, we tend to revert back to our set point. What I think happens with meditation is that the upside gets higher and longer, more sustained, because you're better able to enjoy what's happening right now without racing off to the next thing. And then the lower part of the graph, the bad part, gets shallower and less sustained because you're more resilient. Meanwhile, the happiness set point itself goes up. So I think that's what Mark meant by more of the good and less of the bad. And that is how I would define happiness. Makes sense. I do. We're running out of time a little bit here, but I, I do have to ask, I, you know, there's this whole idea that people are skeptical about meditation. But what I find is that it's just hard. It's hard to dive in and want to do it and continue to do it for some people. Um, so what do you have to say to people who go, I really like this idea and concept and you've laid out a lot of really great math and statistics here, but it's also really hard for me to do. So there's two parts of it that are hard. One is habit formation, which is diabolically hard for human beings. And the other is, you know, the practice itself. I think it is a really good comparison to be made here with exercise. So uh, let me start with the practice itself. Um, sitting down and meditating can be humbling, uh, if not humiliating, because you, you're gonna, many people think they, they need to clear their minds stop all thinking, which is impossible unless you're enlightened or you've died. Um, so just throwing that notion out is really helpful. But then also knowing that it, it can be, it's, you know, it's, it's a real skill to be able to sit, to try to focus on one thing. Usually in meditation, we sit and try to focus on our breath. And then every time we get distracted, you have to kind of gently start again and again and again. And I just, I like comparing that to exercise because if you go to the gym and you're, you know, picking up and putting down heavy equipment, or running in place for 45 minutes at a time, you're gonna start panting and sweating, it'll be hard. Uh, but that's the point. And that is what happens with meditation too. It can be, it's a little challenging at first and it can continue to be challenging, but it pays off in physical and psychological changes just the way exercise does. As to the habit formation part, I think it's very useful just to know that habit formation is hard. You're not uniquely dysfunctional if you've struggled to establish a habit. It's very helpful to set the bar low uh, because that's how we can kind of get uh, the habit more established in our brain and in our lives. So I often tell people my two little pieces of advice here is one minute counts. Start with one minute. And the other piece of advice is daily-ish. Instead of telling yourself you're gonna have to do it every day or you're a failure, shoot for most days. Uh, that way, if you miss a day, you don't have like some, you know, the ego telling you a whole story about how you've blown it. Does that make sense? <laughs> it makes perfect sense. And I think 
Um, I like the one minute counts idea because I think um, that's a very easy way to jump into it. A lot of people, I think, hear meditation and they think, oh, you're going to be in a room for hours upon hours. No, no, no. What is your that's a, I mean, I do quite a bit, but but I you know, it's funny. I so I've been meditating, I don't know, maybe 12 years now, and I've gone through all sorts of regimes, you know, where I have had very specific amounts of time. I was just for this is this is going to sound wild. Uh, it's true. I went through a period of time where I was doing two hours a day because I was really getting into it, which have caused all sorts of chaos in my life. And my wife was unhappy with me and she was right to be unhappy with me. Um, uh, but now I, you know, I kind of try to get in an hour every day and I don't do it all in one go. I just do it kind of where I can and when I can. And, um, but for me, the practice is kind of enjoyable now. Um, so I, it's not like I have to grit my teeth the way I actually still have to do with exercise. I'm not like psyched to get on my Peloton. Um, but with meditation, I'm usually really, it's, it's a nice break. Um, and it's, I've got, I've done enough now where I, you know, maybe some days it's tough, but most days I kind of enjoy it. Um, so, but, but you don't have to do the way I, what I do. I mean, I'm like a professional meditation proponent now you i think sticking with one minute maybe getting up to five minutes there's some data to suggest that the minimum effective dose for people in high stress uh, jobs is 12 minutes um uh the the neuroscientist amishi Jha uh has has uh, developed that data um so but but it, we're not talking about huge amounts here uh you don't have to join a group you don't have to wear special outfits you don't have to go into a room that smells like feet um you can just do it at home get an app I mean, I have an app, which I'm a fan of, but there are lots of apps. You can go out there, taste test and see which one you like. And you're, you're, you know, you're off to the races. I, I would be a little curious of, um, you know, like what your actual meditation practice is. Yeah, I, you gave a little bit of that, that you do, you know, you try mm -hmm. to do an hour a day and that kind of thing. But just, you know, I, I do think there's this idea still out there for whatever reason that, you know, if you meditate, you do, you have to really commit to it and it has to be every day. And then it just, I, I feel like it's so counterintuitive to what, everyone's trying to do with it in terms of balance and, you know, like, and, and calming that voice, as you talk about the, the ego or whatever you want to call it in your head. Um, it's like, it becomes another thing that you feel guilty or stressed out about. Okay. Brace yourself. I'm going to give you a little meditation tutorial here. I think in the end, this is going to be really reassuring to people because you're going to see that meditation is eminently doable. Uh, so I've mentioned there, there are a couple flavors of meditation. There are, there are two I want to talk about because these are the two that I do the most myself. Um, one is called mindfulness meditation. Uh, this is derived from Buddhism, um, but it is uh, stripped of metaphysical claims or religious lingo. And this kind of meditation, mindfulness, is what is studied the most in the labs. Um, and it has been shown to confer all sorts of tantalizing health benefits from lowering blood pressure, uh, boosting your immune system, uh, and literally rewiring key parts of the brain that have to do with attention regulation, so focus, uh, self-awareness, compassion, and stress. Um, it's also been shown to be really helpful with anxiety and depression, both of which I've struggled with since I was a little kid. So a lot to recommend this practice, and it's not particularly intimidating, I don't think. So really, there are three basic steps for beginning mindfulness meditation. The first is to assume a comfortable position. You do not have to set, sit cross-legged. Uh, I'm um, 50 years old and not particularly limber, so I just sit in a chair. Um, 
you can stand up, you can lie down, um, lots of ways to do this. It helps to be, you know, reasonably dignified. So if you're sitting or standing, you want to have your spine reasonably straight, but you don't need to be uptight about it. In fact, you don't want to be uptight about anything in this practice. So assuming a comfortable position, closing your eyes, if you're comfortable, some people are uncomfortable closing their eyes. That's fine. Uh, if that's you, you can just kind of gaze softly at a neutral spot. If you're lying down, that would be on the ceiling. If you're seating, uh, if you're sitting down, you can kind of just gaze softly at some neutral spot on the ground. Um, so that's step number one, comfortable position, eyes closed or not. Step number two is you want to bring your full attention to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. Usually it helps to pick a spot like your nose or your chest or your belly. And you don't have to think about your breath. You're just feeling the raw data of the physical sensations of your belly rising and falling, your chest rising and falling, air entering and exiting your nostrils. You don't have to control your breath. This is not a breathing exercise. You're not breathing in any specific way. You're just paying attention to the sensations of your breath as it happens normally. Some people, I should say, get a little anxious when they're focusing on their breath. So if that's you, you can pick something else to focus on. Uh, the breath is not the point here. The point is just to find something to focus on. So you can focus on the feeling of your full body sitting in a chair, or you can zoom in on the sensations of whatever your hands are touching or your bottom on the chair. It's just picking or sounds in your environment. You're just sort of picking uh, one kind of uncontroversial, un, uh, not triggering natural phenomenon to focus on. So often it's the breath, but you, there are lots of other options. That's step two. Step three is the most important step, which is as soon as you start to do this seemingly simple thing, your mind is likely to go into mutiny mode and you'll start thinking about, you know, what's for lunch? Where did gerbils run wild? What kind of bird was big bird? Blah, blah, blah. This is completely natural. And this is the moment when a lot of people believe they are failed meditators. But in fact, it is the moment that you notice you have become distracted that is proof that you are meditating correctly because the whole point of this exercise is to become more familiar with the chaos and cacophony of your mind so that it doesn't own you. This self-awareness is called mindfulness. The more mindful you get, the less likely you are to be owned the way I was back when I was an ambitious young correspondent by all of the tumult and toing and froing of your ego. So maybe, for example, uh, you've got a little meditation under your belt, you're a little bit more mindful, and you're having a conversation with your partner, and he or she or they say something that's triggering, and you, but instead of just popping off and saying the thing that's going to ruin the next 48 hours of your life, uh, or going and mindlessly eating a sleeve of Oreos, you might notice, oh yeah, I'm getting angry, my, I can feel my chest buzzing, my ears are turning red, I'm having a starburst of self-righteous thoughts. That's mindfulness. And then you can, instead of reacting blindly, you can respond wisely. And that skill is why mindfulness meditation is catching on in executive suites and major corporations. It's catching on among journalists, elite athletes from the Chicago Cubs to Novak Djokovic, to actors and entertainers from Lena Dunham to 50 Cent. This is why this skill, this lowered emotional reactivity and, and boosted focus of mindfulness is why meditation is, this kind of meditation is really take, taking off. I know I'm going on a little long, but let me just circle back to something I mentioned earlier, which is this somewhat treacly sounding loving kindness meditation, which 
uh, again, I had a very negative reaction to it because I'm sort of congenitally skeptical as a journalist, but it's uh, there's a ton of science to show that this this practice was just designed to boost your warmth quotient, really has uh, quite powerful physiological, psychological, and even behavioral consequences. So let me describe the practice to you. First uh, step is the same one, be in a sit in a comfortable position, close your eyes if you're comfortable with that. Second step is bring to mind an easy person or animal. So it could be your dog, your cat, could be some little kid you like, somebody who's just really easy. Um, just bring a felt sense of them into your mind or even a visual image. And then silently repeat four phrases. May you be happy, may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you live with ease. Those are the traditional phrases. You can actually make up whatever phrase you want. Um, and then you move from the easy person to a benefactor, somebody who's been like a mentor for you. If you don't have somebody like that in your life, you can just think of somebody in the popular culture you really admire. And then you move to yourself. So you've got a little juice going here. You've focused on some easy people, you know, an easy person and then a mentor. And then you move to yourself and say the same phrases, maybe happy, healthy, safe, live with ease. And then you move to a neutral person and then a difficult person. And then everybody, all people and animals everywhere. When I first heard about this practice, it sounded like Valentine's Day with a gun to my head, and I really did not like it, but uh, I have done a lot of it in my life now. And again, I've seen the science. It's uh, compelling, both the science and the results I've seen in my own mind. And I highly recommend it. What advice would you give your younger self? <laughs> I once asked my brother that. I, my, my younger brother is a ferociously successful venture capitalist. Um, and, I, and I'll never forget what he said. Don't worry so much. Um, <laughs> it's true, uh, but that's hard, Dan. It's hard. And also you need to do some worrying, you know? So uh, I, it, it, it's, you got to look at the letter of the, of the law there with the don't worry so much. It's not don't worry or don't worry at all. It's don't worry so much. And for me, one of the beautiful things about meditation is that I now have, you know, one of the main fruits of the practice is that you become more self-aware. And so now with this self-awareness, otherwise known as mindfulness, I really can sometimes see, sometimes 10%, 20% of the time I can notice when I am worrying too much. Oh. Yeah, I still think that if you're going to do anything stressful and you are engaged in a very stressful job, some plotting, planning, hand-wringing, rending of garments does make sense. <laughs> we tend to take it too far though. And so with meditation, I've really been able to sometimes catch myself when I cross the line between what I call constructive anguish and useless rumination. And <laughs> that's made a huge difference to me. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've said a lot here, Jamie. So uh, thank you for bearing with me. And I know we're pretty much out of time. So thanks, thanks for having me on. It's very much appreciated. I, uh, you've inspired me to continue trying to do meditation. I am bad at it. I'm a, I'm a therapy person and I've tried to really get into it. So this conversation has been inspiring to me. So thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for doing it. Appreciate it. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to CBS Mornings on the go ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Do you ever feel like there's nothing new in the news? You know there are urgent things happening in the world around you. But all you hear is noise. That's why we made What Next? Our goal is to tell you the stories you haven't heard before. Or maybe a different side to the story you thought you already knew all about. I'm Mary Harris, the host of What Next? And I love my job because it helps me cut through the noise of the news. And then I get to bring it to you. Together, we can figure out what next. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.